Uh, as Danny said, we're going to do something a little bit different now. I don't think that we've done it here at Gozzi's before, but yeah, lots of you have been here a lot longer than I have. Um, and we're doing this series introduction on Ecclesiastes. And we're doing this because there are a few big ideas that are really important for us to consider when we come to this book. And to be honest, it'll probably prove a bit of a distraction, as Danny said, uh, to include it within the, within the sermon itself, you know, to go really long and just to be cutting back and forth from these things. So uh, these things that we'll discuss now, they will continue to come up in the following weeks, but we won't be able to take the time to stop and explain them. So let me encourage you now, yep, we we'll need to switch our minds on, be willing to lean in and to think deeply about these things so that we can actually reap the benefits of it uh, for the rest of the series. So the first thing that we ought to consider is what kind of book is Ecclesiastes? Uh, we know this fairly instinctively in the New Testament, don't we? You know, Matthew is a gospel, uh, Acts is a historical narrative, which we just have seen, and Romans is a letter amongst many others. But Ecclesiastes, it's not quite as straightforward. If you've read it, I think you've probably got this sense. The best way to understand what kind of book Ecclesiastes is, is that it is a wisdom book. Uh, there are five in total in the Old Testament. There's Proverbs, Job, Song of Songs, Lamentations, and Ecclesiastes. These five make up the wisdom books. Uh, and this is really important for us to consider as we approach Ecclesiastes, because we cannot read it as dogmatic truth like we do Romans or Philippians, or read it like a narrative like we do with Matthew's, uh, Matthew and Acts. Because rather than it always stating plain and clear truths, wisdom literature, it often forces us to ponder the nuance and complexities of life. And only through this do we grow in wisdom. Uh, one quick example of this within Ecclesiastes is that while the preacher cries out that everything is vanity, and I'll say more on vanity soon, he will also go on to say that we must be thankful and enjoy the life that we have because it is precious. As a wisdom book, Ecclesiastes is going to humble us and give us a realistic view of life and thereby help us to rightly order our lives. But there's also this other tension that we're going to find, that the wisdom contained in Ecclesiastes is not sufficient for bringing us to salvation in Christ. In fact, there's no mention of salvation in Ecclesiastes. And so there will be various ways that we must consider how to go from the message of the text and to take us to Jesus. Uh, there's this story which Spurgeon tells. It's fantastic. I couldn't leave this out. Uh, tells of an old minister who heard a sermon by a young man. And when the, young man, uh, uh, when the old minister was asked by the young man what he thought of this sermon, uh, he was rather slow to answer. But he, at last he said, if I must tell you, I didn't like it at all because there was no Christ in your sermon. And the young man said, well, no, because I didn't see that Christ was in the text. Oh, said the old minister, but do you not know that from every little town and village and tiny hamlet in England, there is a road leading to London? Whenever I get hold of a text, I say to myself, there is a road from here to Jesus Christ, and I mean to keep on track until I get to him. 
Well, said the young man, but suppose, suppose you're preaching from a text that says nothing about Christ, like Ecclesiastes. The old minister replied, then I will go over hedge and ditch, but I will get to him. I think that's just so great. In Ecclesiastes, we're probably going to have to go over some hedges and some ditches, but we will get to Jesus. Now, the second thing that we must consider is the author and the audience. Who has written Ecclesiastes and who was intended to first receive it? Now, these questions, they're not just for Bible scholars and Bible college students to think about. We all must consider these things because they will help us to rightly understand what the book is saying. Admittedly, uh, it's a little unfair to pose this question because the answer is we just we don't know for sure. Uh, likely to have been written around 800 years before Christ. There's no historical evidence uh, and there's no evidence within the book itself to clearly prove who the author and the audience is. Uh, much of church history has assumed King Solomon as the author uh, because this is a writer, uh, the writer is someone who labels himself as a son of David, a king in Jerusalem. He claims to have great wisdom wealth and power, uh, and there's so many phrases within the book itself that are typical of other things that Solomon did write. So, while we cannot know for sure, it does seem likely that, so- that Solomon wrote it. Uh, but for the sake of being clear and faithful to the book itself, uh, we're just going to refer to him as the preacher. Um, if you're reading in the NIV, it will say the teacher, Uh, And it's likely that you'll have a little footnote there explaining uh, the meaning of the Hebrew word which is there, uh, which is koheleth. Uh, This is describing someone who gathers people together to speak to them. And so right at the beginning of Ecclesiastes in verse 1, we get the image of this preacher or this teacher that are gathering people together uh, to deliver these words, kind of like a sermon, like we're doing now. And this leads us to consider who the audience is. Who was this book written for? Again, we cannot know for sure, but a telling clue is that there is no reference to the covenant name that the Israelite people would use for God. That is Yahweh. Each time that God is talked about, it is the word Elohim, not Yahweh and not even Adonai, which means the Lord. And so every time it says God, it really just says God, not Yahweh and not Lord. I think this can be really helpful in understanding who the intended audience was. Because I think it would seem strange to write to Yahweh's covenant people, Israel, and not mention the name by which he revealed himself to them. Therefore, I think it's completely valid to see that the audience is actually the nations of the world. Everyone and anyone who hears these words, that's who it's being written to. The preacher, the Kaheleth, is gathering people in and calling them to hear his words of wisdom. Now, we get a little bit of a glimpse of this in 1 Kings, where it says that the people of all nations came to hear the wisdom of Solomon and from all the kings of the earth who had heard of his wisdom. So do you know what? That audience, it includes you and it includes me. We are a part of the nations that this book was intended for. 
And this is really, really helpful for us because we don't need to deeply consider what this meant for a Jew or for a Gentile, but rather wisdom is for anyone who hears and it can be applied to them. So we've seen that the author is the preacher who at the very least is a a figure who's like Solomon, uh, if not actually him himself. And the audience is not Israel in particular, but all who gather to hear these words. How's everyone going? Are you still tracking with me? We're nearly there. Uh, Next, we need to talk about the word meaningless. Uh, Perhaps this is the one that you've been waiting for. Uh, It's a word that's used uh, 36 times in Ecclesiastes, and it's the one concept that is most associated with this book. Uh, Every now and then, there's a very stark contrast in translation between the ESV and the NIV, which are the two most common translations within churches. And I think here is a really good example. So the ESV has the word vanity, where the NIV has the word meaningless. Uh, The truth is, I think in our context today, uh, I'm not sure that either word is actually helpful for us. Because when we hear the word vanity, what do we think of? Pride, right? When someone or something is vain or possesses vanity, we think they like to check themselves out in the shop window uh, or really care about what they dress like and look like. But there is a second meaning of vanity, and perhaps one that was more commonly used in years gone by, and that is the quality of being worthless or futile. And this, I think, is getting more to the point of what the preacher is talking about. Uh, the NIV is a little bit less helpful, I think. Uh, the translation, meaningless, you know, meaningless, meaningless, everything is meaningless. Um, you know, how depressing, great choice of a Christmas series, Gosnells, well done. Um, but let me try to show you the meaning of the Hebrew word here, which is, Havel. Everyone say it with me. Havel. Havel. The B is a soft B, so you want to go V. Havel. In Ecclesiastes, many things are declared to be Havel. Uh, Everything is Havel. Pleasure is Havel. Work is Havel. Wisdom is Havel. Money is Havel. Life is Havel. It just goes on and on and on. Uh, But what does it actually mean? At its most basic, it's a word that means a breath, or a vapour, or a mist. Uh, Havel is a word that has a nuanced meaning, and there's been so much ink that has been spilled over what this word really means. But what we're going to see is this in the following light, that when Havel, or vanity, or when the word meaningless appears, we ought to consider if the idea that the preacher is trying to communicate is whether something is fleeting or futile. So is it fleeting in the sense that something that is gone as quickly as it comes? Or is it futile, carrying more the sense of something being pointless or done without a clear sense of why? Because the reality is not every time that the word havel comes up does it carry the same idea. We must consider the context in which the preacher is using it and that will help us understand the idea that is being conveyed. But in both cases, it definitely leads to frustration for the preacher and ultimately for us. As the preacher reflects on the fleetingness and futility of life, it leads to frustration. This is Havel or vanity or meaningless in the book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes. 
Finally, let us look quickly, just quickly, this is our last thing, uh, at the phrase, under the sun. Uh, You might have heard it said that Ecclesiastes is a book about life apart from God. But I don't think that that's quite the whole truth, and I think we're going to see this as we consider the meaning under the sun. Uh, We'll come across many times in Ecclesiastes where the preacher actually assumes God's sovereignty, his providence, and his active work in human life. So what the phrase under the sun is getting at is a consideration of human life from the perception of this present world order. It's not an assumption that God isn't real, uh, but it's with the assumption that God is real and the preacher observes the life under the sun and makes his conclusions from his own wisdom. We're going to see that the preacher says what he does in light of the reality of a day when our life comes to an end and we will stand before the judgment seat of God. So the preacher will often speak of life under the sun and it's important that we don't assume that he is speaking of life apart from God, but rather life from a humanly perspective. Hence, under the sun. So we've covered a lot of ground. Um, I know that it is a lot to take in. Uh, but we're going to share a link to a recording of this so that you can go back over it and you can watch it again if you'd like to. Um, and also, if you have any questions at all, and I can speak for Tony and for Di- well, Tony when he comes back, not now, don't ask him a question now. Uh, when, yeah, Danny and Tony, uh, that we'd love to speak with you more about these things um, and, yeah, chat through them because they are really big concepts, uh, but definitely well worth wrestling with as we head into this series.